Uh, If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking today at verses 30 and 31. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, no fear. Uh, The verses are printed again for you in the bulletin. Uh, We've been going through this chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews, calling it Family Portraits because this is like the family photo album of God's people. It's highlighting the the great people of faith from the Old Testament, showing us that they were very much like us, that they, they were made out of the same stuff, and yet God had given them the gift of faith, and it worked itself out in different ways uh, in their lives. Uh, this morning, we're reading a story that is both sobering and joyful at the same time. Uh, think about this. It's a story about judgment, I mean, really harsh judgment on the one hand, but at the same time, It's the story of the most amazing act of grace that you can find in anywhere in the Bible. How do those two things go together? Let's talk about it, uh, but first let's read verses 30 to 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army of Israel had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies was not killed with those who were disobedient. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Do you think maybe, I've thought about this a lot lately, do you think that we, as we get older, lose our ability to be amazed at things? Do you think that is true at all? Uh, I noticed it a couple weeks ago. Uh, One of the things I, I like to do with my youngest son, Xander, is to get on the lawnmower with him and ride him around. He loves it. Um, you know, he, he calls it a tractor and, uh, it's fun to ride around the yard. Uh, I was riding on my, one of my favorite places to ride with Xander and the very back of our property, there's this line of trees and there's a, a pathway that we've, you know, we've worn it out, you know, because we've, we've ridden the lawnmower around and around. It looks like a racetrack now. Uh, but when you're riding through, it looks like you're in the woods. And so I'm, I'm riding, you know, zipping past the trees with Xander and all of a sudden Xander like stands up. You know, he, he was sitting in my lap, and he just stands up, and I, of course, you know, put on the brakes, and he just yells out, wow, and I'm thinking, what in the world? I look down, there's a little rabbit uh, on the path. Uh, now, for me, there's rabbits all around our yard. I see him and don't even think about it. Hey, there's a rabbit. Whoop-de-doo, right? I've seen him so many times. I kind of know what's going on with rabbits, how they work. They don't do many things that are that amazing to me. As an adult, but with my, in my three-year-old son's eyes, it was like a unicorn had jumped out of the woods and crossed the path we were on because he still has this ability to be amazed. Sometimes when we hear something or see something over and over and over and over again, and as we get older and, and you know, we see, some of y'all are older than I am, right? And you've, we've seen a lot of things in life. We've had a lot of experiences and After so many of those experiences, the the initial wow kind of fades away. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why is it when we think about that, we sit there, you know, we just sit there. Amazing grace. Yeah. Just a rabbit running through the yard. Why don't we stand up and go, wow, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved not just anybody, it saved a wretch like me. 
In this story, uh, Israel is now grown up. They're no longer an infant people. They are a, they're a teenage people, maybe we could say. And Moses has died, and God is sending his teenage people into the promised land. And as they go in, they have two assignments. The first assignment is to be God's instrument of judgment. The people who had lived in the land were wicked beyond compare, God said. And God was, had been so patient for 400 years, and finally it was time for God to cause the chickens to come home to roost. And so his people were come, to come in and to judge and, and actually annihilate the people that lived in the land. That, that's a... We'll talk about that in a minute. That's a, a shocking thing to us. It was probably shocking to them too at some degree, but that's what God told them to do. The second assignment was inhabit the land that I'm going to give you. Annihilate, judge, and inhabit. I want to tell you, in this story, for those two things to be able to go together, annihilation and grace, judgment and mercy is an amazing thing. Something that should sort of retune our hearts back to something like the childhood's amazement in God's grace. But also in the story, guess who gets saved? A prostitute. Of all the people in the land that God is coming to judge, there's one lady and her family that God, as it were, reaches down and picks out. And it's not the morally upstanding lady who followed all the rules. It's not the one who would sit on the front row of church. <laughs> it's the prostitute. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Are you all ready this morning? Hopefully by the end of the sermon, we're going to be standing up going, wow, that's my goal today. Y'all going to do that? And if you actually do that, that's okay. Uh, you know, it might scare me a little bit, but I want you to do it if you want to do it. Because it's important to have our hearts to be tuned again and again and again by grace. And there are three things, if you look at your bulletin, three things from this story that I think can give you a tune-up, an amazement tune-up. First of all, we see the need for grace. It's amazing why we need it. Secondly, we're going to see the freeness of grace. And lastly, we're going to see the richness of God's grace. The need for God's grace, the freeness of his grace, and the richness of his grace. First of all, the, the need. Uh, and, it, and it comes to the fact that this story, like I said, is a story of two things that seem very contradictory. A story of judgment and annihilation, while at the same time being a story of mercy. And, and us today, we, we hear that and we scratch our heads. How can God be both? We just don't think he can be both. Uh, why, why, after all, would God call on Israel to annihilate a people? Well, I think it should be said, first of all, that God didn't always do this. This is not God's constant practice. He doesn't tell his people at all times to go and annihilate his enemies. This was a unique, actually once-in-history experience. And it tells us all the way back in the story of Abraham, which was 400 years prior to this, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you the land, but not yet, because their sin has not yet reached its filling point. In other words, God says, I I'm still being patient with the people of Canaan that lived in that land. God was patient 400 years. And yet we know during that 400 years, the people of Canaan were, in fact, wicked. There was all kinds of sexual perversion and all kinds of stealing and all kinds of violence. You know, God described it as the land was soaked in blood. People were sacrificing their children as children to false gods and all kinds of crazy things. 
And they persisted in it, even though God had shown them patience. And here it was. God was picking his teenage son, if you will, his, his teenaged Israel, to be on earth the instrument of his judgment, of his justice. God is a God of justice, according to the Bible. God is a God of justice. And even though we today, we look at this and we think, you know, how can God be mercy and justice? How can it be grace and justice? I don't think people maybe at this time had the same kind of problem with that that we do. I think they knew some things maybe a little bit better uh, than we know them today. And here's an example. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 9, just as an example, Deuteronomy 9 verses 4 to 6. Before Moses dies, here are some of his last words to Israel. He says it three times in a row, just in case they forget it. Y'all, he says to Israel, y'all, you're about to enter the land when I die. But remember, God is not giving you this land because you are righteous. He's giving you this land because they are wicked. And then he says, again, I mean, you read it for yourself, verses 4 to 6. It's actually kind of funny because he says it three times. He says, remember, it's not because you were righteous. It's because they were wicked. And then he says it again. Remember, it's not because of your righteousness. It's because they are wicked. In other words, what's going on? You say, well, how does that answer the problem? It answers it this way. God's mercy and grace makes sense with his justice, and actually it only makes sense in light of his justice. Grace and mercy has no meaning apart from perfect justice. And so God said to Israel, Israel, it's not because you have been better than the Canaanites by, you know, greater or lesser degree, whether you have or haven't, that I'm choosing you to inhabit the land while I'm evicting them out of it. It's not because of that. I don't grade people on a scale. I don't grade people on the curve and weigh up good deeds and bad deeds. No, here's how I do. Perfect justice. Sin deserves death. Sin deserves annihilation from the world that I made because I made it good. It's my world. And I, ha- I reserve the right to judge. But mercy and grace is my gift in face of my justice. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish them for the sins that I've been patient with for 400 years. But I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to use you as an instrument of justice. And I'm going to plant you forever in my land, a free gift, a land flowing with milk and with honey. You say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, if you get a chance this afternoon, read Revelation 19. Just read that. It's a picture of Jesus. <laughs> and it's not the, the picture of Jesus, you know, baby Jesus or Jesus meek and mild that we're used to seeing, right? This is a picture of Jesus. Literally, he's on a white horse, he has a tattoo. It says he has a name written on him, you know, that nobody else knows except him. He has a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's coming to make the blood flow as high as the horse's bridle. That's Jesus. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing, that God is a God of justice. And and isn't it right that that's actually what we want, even though we don't know we want it? Isn't it? I think our problem, you see, today is that we get the furniture of the world backwards, I've used this before, but I want to use it again. When you go into a courtroom, there's a certain furniture arrangement. Isn't that right? And it doesn't ever change. Uh, Who sits, let me give you a quiz. Who sits on the bench? The judge. Can anybody else sit on the bench? Not without getting arrested. (laughs) Uh, Who sits on the stand? 
The witness, right? Uh, who sits there at the bar on both sides, right on the other side of the bar? The lawyers on both sides and the defendant and the accuser, the accused and the accused. You cannot rearrange that arrangement. It would be some kind of messed up to put the accused on the bench and the judge at the bar and the, you know, and the lawyer on the stand. You can't do that. And yet, here's what C.S. Lewis says. We're always trying to put God on the stand. We're always trying to put ourselves on the bench. We think we can say, God, what gives? How can you be this way? How could you be justice and mercy? How could you call God's people to annihilate a whole people group, uh, to come into a land, to take it over? I mean, that sounds crazy. How can you do that? That's actually a question that assumes I'm the one that gets to ask the questions. (laughs) And God's the one that has to answer. And the fact is, C.S. Lewis says, the fact is God is not willing. He's never going to step down from the bench and give it up for you or for me. Instead, God gets to question us. In face of my perfect justice, God says, what hope do you have? In face of my perfect justice, what hope do you have? In a world where the Canaanites, after 400 years of sin, get completely wiped out of their land, what hope does a person like me have? What hope do people like Israel, the people of of God that came out of Egypt, what hope did they have? The only hope that they have was that in the face of justice to man, somehow God was going to show uncommon and amazing grace. He was going to not give them what they deserved so as to give them what they positively did not deserve, this great exchange that he was going to do in his grace. That's the only hope that they had. That's the only thing that made Israel Israel. Remember what Moses said? It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of their wickedness. And because of my mercy and my grace. We long for justice, don't we? This, this whole past year, our, our culture has been full of voices wanting justice for various things. That's a good thing to long for. It's a good thing to call out for. But you know... Justice can't come, can, 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 let me ask you, can justice come from us, ultimately? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're supposed to pursue justice. Uh, God gives to human society the power of justice to, uh, to punish bad and to uh, approve of that which is good, and we're supposed to pursue the, mo- the most perfect justice that we possibly can in that system. But ultimately, the Bible says the truest justice can only come from him. Like an uh, 18th century philosopher said, a very famous philosopher, he said that perfect justice can only come from someone who is both omnipotent and omniscient. Meaning you got to be all-powerful and you got to be all-knowing. The reason our justice miscarries is we don't know all the facts. We never can. We never can fully know. The most perfect judge in the world can't know everything. He can only know what's presented to him. Sometimes the right things are presented, sometimes they're not. He can only go on what he sees, or she can only go on what she sees. He also has to be perfectly powerful. In other words, you can evade human justice, can't you? You can be a fugitive, you can go on the run, and you can make it to the end of your life and never get caught. This 18th century philosopher said, if someone was all-powerful, and if someone was all-knowing, that person could bring perfect justice. Well, that same philosopher said, but... We can't really know if a God exists, 
but we better act like a God does exist. <laughs> because if we don't, society is going to fall in on itself. Well, I want to tell you better news than that philosopher told you back in the 18th century. Better, much better news than that philosopher. We can know that a God exists. <laughs> See, how do we know that? Because this God has not kept to himself. He's not a, he's not a hermit. He's not a loner. You know, this God has spoken. This God has revealed himself, most especially in his son, Jesus, where he appeared on this earth. And he, had a, he was a man of su such a height and such a weight, and you could actually look at him. If you were able to have a camera, you could have taken a picture of him. He was that real. And he showed that God was perfectly full of truth, justice, and yet at the same time, perfectly full of grace and perfectly full of mercy. Our world has hope. Amen? Because an omniscient, all-knowing, and an omnipotent and all-powerful God reigns over it. Here's the question. Do you believe that you deserve his justice? You and me. Do we believe that you, we deserve God's justice? If we don't, I'll tell you right, before we even get any further, that's why you're not amazed at grace. The story of Rahab's rescue would make absolutely zero sense if God was not annihilating Jericho, right? It would make no sense. There would be no reason for Rahab to be rescued. Grace would not be amazing in her case if at the same time God was not ready to call the Jerichoites to pay up for the ways that they had rebelled against their maker. And yet, because he was coming and the bill was due and God was going to make sure the bill got paid, it made the mercy that God showed Rahab that much more amazing. And by the way, the mercy that he showed to Israel. You got to know, if you're going to be like my son with the rabbit and not like me with the rabbit, you've got to understand. You deserve God's justice and you're not on the good side of justice. And I'm not either. That's the first thing, the need for grace. But secondly in this story, we see the freeness of God's grace, the freeness of God's grace. Uh, have you ever noticed at work, maybe, I don't, we all have different jobs in here, but have you noticed at work that people are not very good at handling the merit system? The merit system at work. Don't you know there is a merit system at work, uh, right? And we're very bad at handling it in so many different ways. Uh, here's some examples. When we're promoted, how often have you been promoted or somebody you know has been promoted, and then suddenly the people they used to work with when they were down below were their buddies, and now that they won't even speak to them or you know, pay them any attention? That they're just the peons, right? Have you ever seen that? We're not good at the merit system. Have you ever felt in your heart envy that you didn't get promoted? You look up at the, the higher-ups, and you, you, all you can think is negative thoughts. Even when negative thoughts aren't warranted, all you can think of is negative because you want that position, and they're not supposed to have it. Uh, have you ever seen the boss promote someone that you believe didn't deserve to be promoted? How did that feel? What did you think? What did you say around the water cooler or whatever? I mean, all, I mean we are griping. We are, we are complaining all the time because, well, how did they get that job? We're really bad at the merit system. Well, I got news for you this morning. If we're bad at the merit system at work, just think about the merit system at Jericho <laughs> in this story. It's an amazing thing. Uh, the merit system here is turned upside down and on its head. 
Because of all the people in Jericho that these spies came to, they came to a prostitute's house. Now, right away, people, when they read this, think, oh, man, these are bad dudes. These spies must have been, what were they doing at the prostitute's house? Exactly. That's a great way to think. That's the way you should think about it. I mean, it just highlights the shocking nature of this story. More than likely, they went to her house because it was open at all hours. It was dark, low lights. Men were coming in and out. It was easy to hide. But nevertheless, they came there. And of all the people in Jericho that God could have said, hey, I'm going to make an example of you by sparing you and your family, God comes to this lady, this woman of ill repute, this person with the worst reputation perhaps of anybody else in the whole city. When it comes to the marriage system, God does stuff different, right? He does something completely different. Uh, In his justice, his merit system is perfect. God gives to no one, the Bible says, anything but what they deserve in justice. God's justice is exactly fitted for the crime. Uh, He gives no more, no less punishment. When the Bible speaks about hell, and it does speak about hell as much as we don't like it, that is a picture of perfect justice against sinners like you and I who have rebelled against God. No more and no less justice. But when it comes to God's grace, you've got to throw out the whole question of merit. Because merit actually doesn't have anything to do with grace. Grace and merit actually are like oil and water. You try to put them together and the oil stays separate from the water no matter how much you do because they're two totally opposite things. God shows grace not based on anything In the person being shown grace too, like Moses said to Israel, it's not because of your righteousness, not because of your righteousness, not because of your righteousness. God shows grace simply because of his own choice to love. That's why Rahab is picked out. Everybody in Jericho heard the message about what Israel was up to. I mean, we read it in the Old Testament scripture reading this morning. She said to the spies, hey, we know, we know. We've heard that Israel got, you know, rescued out of Egypt and they got brought through the Red Sea and Pharaoh got destroyed and y'all are coming to take our homes away. We know that. We know that God is using you as a hammer against our sin. Think about that. Everybody knew. But she said, everybody, when they heard, their heart melted with fear. And yet Rahab's heart didn't just melt with fear. Rahab's heart ran for mercy. Rahab's heart ran for mercy. Say, why did her heart run for mercy and theirs didn't? I think the only thing you can say to that is God was kind to her. God worked in her heart. God had had orchestrated her life in such a way that when that message came, she was ready to hear it. She was ready to hear it. And she was ready to run to those spies and say, spies, I'm going to show you. And she uses this beautiful word in the Bible. She uses the word covenant. I'm going to show you covenant love and covenant kindness. Please show me covenant kindness in return. She is pleading for God's mercy. It's a little bit like when Jesus came to this earth. Who was it that understood his message? And his message was not all that different than the one in Jericho, right? God is about to show up and wipe out sin. By the way, that's still the message this morning, right? God is about to show up and wipe sin out. And yet when most people hear that message, how do they respond? They melt with fear. They think, oh, I don't want to hear that. I ain't going back to church. 
That's uncomfortable. Or, that's terrifying. How in the world could a good God ever do that? Or, oh, I don't deserve that. Hitler does, but not me. Until every now and then. And we pray it's more than every now and then. Somebody says, oh, God, you're perfect in justice. We've heard it. But, oh, Lord, show me covenant mercy. Spare me. Spare my family. Find some way, you know. And when Jesus came with that message, who was it that did that? Jesus said it was the prostitutes, like Rahab, and it was the tax collectors like Matthew and all the rest, the people who were the outcasts of society, the people who thought they had their stuff together, the people who thought that they could put God on the bench or God in the, the, on the stand and them in the bench. Those are the people that didn't have any time of day at all for the message of Jesus. The good news wasn't good to them because they didn't know why they needed it and they did not understand that God is free either to show mercy or not to show mercy. It is a wonder when he does. And oh, if he would show mercy to me, it would change my life. That's what Rahab did. She had learned, perhaps it was because she, I mean, we could probably agree that everybody in Jericho, she knew how harmful Jericho's sins were. Didn't she? Wouldn't you think a prostitute in a town would know the dark side of the town and how painful and hard it would have been to live in that town because of the, the violence and the wickedness and the using and abusing that was going on every single day? She had been hurt by it. She knew it. And wouldn't you think that a prostitute would also be someone to know, hey, I don't have any resources in me to solve my problem or to solve my family's problem. All I can do is throw myself all the weight of my life onto somebody else. That's what Rahab did. A truly amazing act of faith to say, God, I don't deserve it. But nevertheless, by your kindness, would you show it? Would you show grace? It turns out church is a whole lot like the workplace sometimes. We got the merit system in full effect, don't we, sometimes? Sometimes we do. We fall into that. Doing things by merit then, rather than by grace. And so some of us may be sitting here watching this or, or here in the room, and we may be thinking, you know, I deserve, I belong here. Some of these people might not belong here, but I belong here. That's a wrong attitude. You're looking at the rabbit and thinking, oh, well, just a rabbit. Rather than standing to your feet thinking, oh, my goodness, God showed mercy to me. He showed mercy to us. Others of us come to church, and some people that don't even come to church, they, they don't come because they think, I could never belong there. I could never measure up. If I walked in, the doors would fall in on me. Because how could, I mean, God would strike me dead. How could he ever Except someone like me. I want you to see both of those ways of thinking. The stuffy, stuck-up way and the way that says I could never fit in. Both of those ways assume that grace could somehow be earned. And therefore, both of them are wrong for the same reason. Grace cannot be earned. And when we think it can be earned, even in the smallest degree, we shrivel our ability to be amazed at it. And when we shrivel our ability to be amazed at grace, we don't grow in faith, we don't grow in love, and we don't grow in obedience. Faith thrives off of amazement at grace. It thrives off of it. 
Faith does not thrive off of simple merit system, do this, don't do that, and you'll get in if you do it, and you won't if you don't. Faith doesn't thrive off that. I'll tell you what thrives off that. Self-righteousness. Being like a Pharisee thrives off that. Grace, though. Amazement at grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not a, not a good old boy like me or not a, you know, not, not a good person like me or someone who's just trying their best like me, but a wretch. Rahab was able to say it. I'm a wretch. That kind of amazement is what makes me want to believe and trust and obey and love God more than anything else in all the world. This morning, are you acting like God owes you something still? Are you still doing that? If you are, that's why you're, that's why you're not amazed. And if you are, that's also why your faith life doesn't grow. God owes us nothing. But has given us everything through his son, Jesus. This morning, do you think, think about this, this, is, this probably catches more of you. Do you actually believe that your sins can be greater than God's grace? Do you actually think that's even possible? If you don't think that's possible, why are you living that way? <laughs> why are you living like your sin could somehow override the grace of God? That's actually very insulting to God to think that. It's insulting to Jesus who died on the cross. It's insulting to Jesus who rose from the dead. It's insulting. Our sin can never be greater than the grace of God. That's why God chose to save Rahab the prostitute that day. That's why he always chooses to save wretches like her and like me and you. To show the world, to show the world that nothing can be greater than his grace. Nothing. No sin can condemn someone who truly repents and believes. No sin. Isn't that amazing? That's the second thing. Lastly today, the richness of the grace of God. I love this. Rahab was not just, Rahab was not just let go that day. That, that would have been enough for her to just be let go and, and not punished. I want you to see Rahab was brought all the way in that day. There's a richness to the grace of God. Uh, sometimes we think God's grace is simply this. Okay, I don't go to hell one day. I get out of hell or I get out of jail or I get out of a bad situation. It's sort of a get out of jail free card. And that would be good. That would be great, actually. But that would not be amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What God does to Rahab is doesn't just say, hey, I'm not going to kill you or your family. He actually says, I'm not going to kill you or your family, and you and your family are going to become a part of Israel. You were foreigners and strangers, now you're going to become a part of the, of the nation. Uh, Joshua goes on to say that uh, Rahab lived among the Israelites till her dying day. And it actually says she becomes the grand, great-grandmother of David the king. And by extension, she becomes the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-etc-etc-grandmother of Jesus himself. The prostitute doesn't just become a, you know, a, a, a foreigner in Israel who is saved and spared. She becomes a full citizen who has a, a central role in God's worldwide redeeming work. This is what the grace of God does, y'all. Full restoration. Uh, when when um, Rahab said to the men that night, the spies, she said, uh, show me covenant love and I'll show you covenant love. Please just show me covenant love. 
The men said, okay, our lives for your lives. What they were doing there is a Jesus-like thing, weren't they? They were doing a Jesus-like thing. Our lives in the place of your life. What goes for me will go for you. What goes for you will go for me. And Jesus on the cross did the same thing in an even greater way. He says, my life for your life. My life for your life. Full exchange. All that I am is going to become all that you are. All that you are is going to become all that I am. I'm going to be put to death in your place, and you're going to be brought to life and brought all the way into the family of God in my place as I deserve. That's the great exchange that brings full restoration. There's a picture of this in the Bible uh, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2. And and it pictures the, the courtroom of God. God is on the bench, on the throne. And here comes Joshua, the high priest, but Joshua is dressed in dirty clothes. And beside Joshua is Satan, the prosecuting attorney. Literally, you can read this in the Bible. And Satan says to God, look at him. He's got dirty clothes. He's a sinner. He cannot serve you. You must punish him because you're a just God. And God says, I rebuke you, Satan. He commands that a fresh robe be brought. He commands that the dirty robe and the dirty turban be taken off Joshua's body, that he be washed, and that the clean robe be put on. And then he says to Joshua, Joshua, you are like a brand plucked out of the fire. Yes, I owed you justice, but I have not given it to you. And not only have I let you, I haven't just let you go, but I fully 100% qualified you to stand before me forever and serve me and worship me and praise me. I brought you all the way in. There is no need for you anymore to have to even mention the past because your sins have been buried in the heart of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, I've removed your sins from my thought my, and my, my uh, memory or my uh, desire to bring it back up again. And I have given to you my unmerited and unwavering favor, Joshua. That's a picture of full restoration. And yet sometimes you and I, we look at the cross and we think all it means is we've been let go. It doesn't mean we've been brought in. Surely not. Surely it just means God tolerates me now. Or that he sort of likes me on most days and he's going to let me into heaven. But man, by the skin of my teeth, I want you to know what the Bible says is true. Because of the cross and resurrection, just like Rahab, God brings you all the way in. He, he doesn't just tolerate you. He delights in you. This morning, as we sing worship songs to God, the Bible says God sings in delight over us. God loves his people. He loves his people. He doesn't just like you. He loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He, he wants you with him. He wants to be with you in every conceivable way. And so Rahab says, show me covenant mercy. She took refuge in that covenant mercy. And she asked those men, show me a sign that it's going to be true. Show me a sign. Don't you want a sign that God loves you? Don't you this morning? Well, for Rahab, they gave her a cord, a scarlet thread, a scarlet rope that they put down from the window. And that's what she used to let them down out of the house. But she was supposed to put that back out so that as they came and annihilated Jericho, they would know that's the house. The scarlet 
rope is hanging down, and that's the one we're not going to. It was sort of like a, an homage back to the Passover, right? Where they had to have the red blood over the door. And the red rope was hanging over Rahab's house. She was covered in the blood. Symbolically, right? Do you want a sign this morning that God loves you? Look no further than Jesus Christ. Look no further. You say, well, I can't see Jesus. you got to keep looking harder because I guarantee you, you can if you try. You can't see him with your eyes here, but you can see him surely. The Bible says it, and I believe it, and I've seen him. And I believe you can see him. This is the perfect place, actually, to see Jesus. And when you see him, what you see is not only have I been freely 100% forgiven and gotten out of hell, but I've been 100% brought into heaven. I'm in the family. I have a part to play. I'm a part of this ancient mission where walls fall down and prostitutes get saved. I'm a part of this ancient mission. Yeah, it's bringing the message of judgment, and that is a harsh message and hard to hear, but it's also bringing the message of free, rich grace. It's joy. It's a privilege. Amen? None of y'all are standing up saying, wow. <laughs> I didn't figure you would, but I, but I trust that in your heart, some of us are. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, God. Lord, I confess, first of all, that I am the chief offender here. That I've said amazing grace and I've not thought amazing thoughts. I've, I've been bored with it. I've, I've been distracted from it. I've brought back the merit system a billion times in my life in place of it. Oh, God, show us covenant love today. Give us the sign of the blood of Jesus marked over the doors and windows of our houses so that we can experience the full favor of God in our lives. Help us to be a church of grace. We pray it in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.